going to drive home a point. What we do in here on Sunday morning is not about show business. This is, this is not a show. When you go to a show, you sit and you watch other people participate in something, don't you? In just a few moments, some of us are going to watch our favorite team play, and some of us did on the weekend. That's college. But on Sunday, we watch our favorite professional team play. And if you notice anything about a professional team, there are about 70,000, sometimes 100,000, depending on the size of the auditorium, where there are these tens of thousands of spectators who watch 22 people fight to the last second in order to win a football game. Many of us will be sitting on our couches at home and watching those 70,000, watching those 22 play the football game, and we will be what we call spectators. We are not participants in the activity. And no matter how much we yell or scream or whatever we have a tendency to eat popcorn, some of you sleep during some of those games. You're still, you are still a, you're still watching 22 people play, and you are not participating. In spite of this building, I mean, take a look around at this building. This was designed in fashion of the Mel Tillis building in Branson, Missouri. I've been in that building. It's just like this one on the inside. The seats are a little bit wider because it's supposed to accommodate senior adults. Okay? And the same man that built that building built this building. It is a replica of this building. And this building, while it is designed to replicate a theater, this is not... A theater. It is a place of worship. And we are not called to spectate. We are called to participate. And I think sometimes we get that a little bit confused. Because when it becomes all about us, we become spectators, not participants, and we fail to engage. Now, if you look at the two the one word on the two screens behind me here, you see the word engage. What does that mean? The word engage means to participate. It means to become involved in. And we have been called by Christ when we were saved to follow Jesus and to serve Christ and also to share Christ. This call that we have on our lives as disciples of Christ is not a watching thing. It is not a spectator thing. It is a participating thing. And we are called to engage. And I'm afraid that because of whatever apathy or indifference or maybe some sort of idea that, that, that we are not the ones that the pastor and the staff and maybe even our life group teacher, director, whatever, they are the ones that need to be engaged. But as far as me, I am absolved of my responsibility and I don't need to be engaged. And that is nothing farther from the truth because if you're a fully devoted Christ follower, you are called to be engaged. It's not a choice. And the Apostle Paul is writing to some, some, some people for whatever reason. I'm, I'm convinced he wants to write to them. Maybe some are not engaged and maybe some need to be engaged. He's writing to the Roman church, a church that he longs to go to and soon will. 
And in here, he helps us understand how we might be engaged. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I, I, if, if you follow me on Twitter, if you know anything about my Facebook, you know that I love Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon wrote this interesting little snippet, and I, I just want to read it. I almost missed it, and, and, but I want to read it to you. It's interesting what he says. He said, if sinners are damned, I said that in church, if sinners are damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. At least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them, with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. I wonder if we have that kind of zeal with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which the Apostle Paul has said already as we begin this study almost 11 weeks ago, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The Apostle Paul understood the importance of the gospel and the power that it had, and for that reason he said, I am not ashamed. You and I today live in an ever-changing culture, yet in spite of our ever-changing culture, we possess a never-changing gospel. The gospel never changes to meet the culture. And in this ever-changing culture, we have, we possess, we proclaim, we share a never-changing gospel. And as we live in this ever-changing culture, proclaiming a never-changing gospel, it's important that as we go out into the world that God has called us to live, that we do it with prayer. For the Apostle Paul is going to challenge his readers and us today to become a praying people. Now, some of you are saying, well, I, had, I had many people ask me, well, what was this today about? What is today about? What is today about? And apparently not too many people were that concerned about it because we had a few missing in the orchestra and a few people missing today. And I know other people had plans. And some are so curious about what this is all about. They're watching us on the Internet, wherever they are, to make sure they don't miss anything exciting. No, I am, I'm not going to say anything as revolutionary as some of you think and I'm saying. But if I had said to you last week, come this Sunday and learn about how we can pray for the lost, you would not have come. Oh, that's what it is. To pray. But the fact is that unless we become a praying people, we will not see the, the unleashing of the Spirit of God for renewal and revival on our church and in our city that it desperately needs. Our city needs an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us, and I'm convinced that we who are in the heart of this city are the catalyst that God wants to use to bring about that outpouring. We are the few who have, we're the few believers, we're the only church, one of the few churches that has stayed. You realize that? Everybody is left to the burbs because the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Only in the last, I've been here nine years and three or four months, only to see in the last nine years several churches moved to the inner city. Why? Because there are unreached people to reach here in the city. 
I'm convinced that we have a history of 100 plus years in this community, in this location, and God has blessed us with this building for the purpose to be engaged with the greatest message that is the power of God unto salvation that the world desperately needs to hear, and our city needs our message. They need our witness, and before we can become the church that I believe Christ wants us to become, we must engage in prayer. And most of us, if and when we do pray, it's maybe at the table for a few minutes, say, thank you, God, for this food. Amen. Dig in, and we're done. And the Apostle Paul, who is, who is about to go to Rome, is sharing that he is engaged already with those that he hopes to, to share the gospel with in Rome. How is he engaged? He's engaged in prayer, and he knows that he needs to cover that, that missionary journey in prayer even before he goes. And so we see here seven things that he's going to encourage us to do, how we can engage. Number one, I need to share the gospel. How do I engage? I share the gospel, or I share in, the God, in God's plan. I need to share in God's plan. Notice in verse one, he says one word, brothers. Brothers. This is an affectionate term. It is a term in which the Apostle Paul is addressing those who will read this writing as brothers and sisters in Christ. They are a part of the family. They have already heard, they have understood, and they have put their faith and trust in the power of the gospel. And because of their faith by grace in the trust of Jesus, they have become saved, and now they are part of the family. They have been grafted, they have been adopted into the family. They are brothers and sisters. It's an affectionate term who share a common faith. They share a common Savior. They share a common enemy. They share a common gospel because they have, and they share the same salvation. They are his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he begins this very important address in chapter 10, verse 1, by addressing them as brothers. Notice that it is also a plural word which means that it's all-inclusive, that everyone, irrespective of who they are, is to be included in what he's about to talk about. And so he's saying that none of us are without excuse. None of us are without an invitation. None of us are without an opportunity. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's interesting that he makes this appeal to brothers and sisters in Christ because he thinks and he believes, as does the heart of God believe, that those of us who have encountered Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior and understand not only the validity but also the value of having placed our faith and trust in Christ because we have been saved from our own damnation, that it is us who understand understand the, the value of that would be the ones who would be the catalyst that would then begin to pray. How can we who have been saved by grace through faith, pardoned of our sin, released from the condemnation, the control of sin in our lives, not pray for those who do not know and experience what we have experienced? How can we? It's like you've been, you've been saved from this horrific disease and you have a solution for the disease, maybe some medicine, but you are hoarding it or holding it to yourself, not sharing with others while they are in the process of dying and, and are dead. 
And he appeals to who? Uh, to those who, who know Christ, to those who've been redeemed, for those who have been saved, for those who have a sense of gratitude for their own salvation, for it is they and only they who can then share the gospel and who would be willing to share the gospel because we know the value that it has for us. We know the value that it has for others who don't possess what we have. And maybe part of the reason that we don't share is because somewhere along the line we have lost its value. We've lost its value. We have become self-righteous Pharisees who walk around in our own spiritual garb thinking now that somehow we have saved ourselves and we're above the rest and everyone is beneath us. But when we really see ourselves in the light of the gospel, and the depravity of our souls and the lostness that that, that that brings and the damnation that that should have brought, that it were not for the love of Jesus that we sung about a while ago, we would be lost. Have you lost the value of what Christ has done for you? I think it begins there. We must share in God's plan. God is on a redemption plan, and he has somehow chosen us to join him in that plan of redemption. Number two, we need to strengthen our concern. I need to strengthen my concern. Notice he says, brothers, my heart's desire. My, is there a personal pronoun? My. Is an authentic word in the original language, my. He, he is saying my. It is, it is a, a personal pronoun that is about to follow something that is very personal to the Apostle Paul. This is not something he's saying is not, not personal to me, but, but my heart's desire. This is very personal for the Apostle Paul. My heart's desire. My heart, here this word, means the center of one's everything. The center of your thoughts, the center of your conscience, the center of your will, the center of your emotion is the center of your whole being. The center of my whole being has this desire. That word desire is a strong word. It simply means God's speed or God's will. But what the Apostle Paul is revealing here is that he is revealing, as we studied last week, that God is in a constant pursuit of those who are undecided and unbelievers and unrepentant. He's constantly pursuing them. The Apostle Paul says, I have that same desire. Isn't it interesting? We studied last week the last verse of, of Romans 10, and now this week we're studying the, the first verse of, of, of Romans 10. They're kind of like bookends. We studied last week this side of it where it says God's in a constant pursuit because he loves people. He's constantly pursuing them like, like the, the shepherd's pursuing the lamb or like the lady pursuing the coin or like the father pursuing his unrepentant son self-righteous son out in the field to come in god is doing that now the apostle paul says my heart's desire is the same desire as god's i have the same desire as god brothers my heart's desire is to see my fellow countrymen who not only failed to receive his message and recognize his messiahship and his miracles but nailed him to the cross and put his lifeless body in the grave only to be disappointed three and a half years later he rose from the dead we have been proclaiming this gospel to them and they have still rejected it and yet it is my heart's desire that they be saved 
My heart's desire that they be saved. I wonder if we have a concern. Do we really have a concern for the lost people in our community, in our city? Really? Is there really a concern? Well, I'm concerned a little bit. Maybe we need to strengthen that concern. Maybe we need to crank it up. Bring it up a notch. Because maybe our concern isn't the same concern as God's concern. Because God was so concerned that he sent his one and only son to die a a death on a cross for sins that he didn't commit. That was his concern for you and for me. And if he's that concerned about us, should we not be that concerned about them? Is that our heart's desire? And if it's not, maybe we need to strengthen a little bit and drive it up a notch. Because until we become concerned, we're going to remain in apathy and indifference. How do I engage? By sharing in God's plan, by strengthening my concern. Number three, submit a heartfelt plea. To submit a heartfelt plea. My heart's desire, brothers and sisters, and pray, and pray. It is a logical connection the word and, it's in the original language, and pray. This, he says, my brothers, my heart's desire, and. There's a connection because when it is our heart's desire, we will pray. That's what he's saying. Because of my heart's desire, it is welling up within me. Every fiber of my being has a, a concern, a compassion, a passion to see my fellow countrymen saved. And because of that, I am driven to prayer. And the word prayer here is, is not just some little tidbit prayer we pray at the table. It is, a, it is a plea. It is a begging. It is a burden that is brought about with relentless, unceasing prayer. He doesn't stop praying. He is constantly, continually praying for the salvation of his countrymen because he is burdened by their lostness. And yet I wonder as we take a look at Paul's concern and what he prays about, what do we pray about? What's of most concern on our hearts? The ingrown toenail on my sister Susie's big toe? Is that what we're concerned about? Now, I know the Apostle Paul is a man who is a man of prayer, and he constantly in, his, in all of his writings talks about the, uh, the importance of praying about everything, but the primary thing that we should be praying about is the lostness in our city. And yet, we have a hard time getting people to pray for the lostness of our city. And I think the reason for that is because there is a lack of concern for those who are without Christ. Because when we have that concern, that becomes the priority in our prayer. And yet that is the the lowest thing that we often pray for and pray about. For if we 
truly were concerned, we would offer a heartfelt prayer to God for the lostness of our, those people that we live next to, we go to school with, we play ball with, we work with, we associate, we would pray for their salvation. I just, a little quick tidbit thing. Like I said the other day when I talked about a family member, the conviction that God placed upon my heart, to pray tears for those who don't know Christ and the responsibility that we have to unite with him in his redemptive plan to pray. Because I'm convinced that until we pray, the Spirit of God will not move. I'm not saying we control God because God has done everything he needs to do. But we have a responsibility to join God in that redemptive plan. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, really in, in that stress between the sovereignty of God and the plan of salvation and our responsibility, he doesn't try to explain all that. He just moves right on. And that's the tension often that we have. Number four, we need to support God's activity. After we share in God's plan, strengthen our concerns, submit a heartfelt plea, we must support God's activity. Notice he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God. That word to is a preposition of direction. What that simply means is, as Paul is praying, he's praying to someone, toward something. And that person he's praying to is God. And the word there is theos. It recognizes God as the sovereign ruler who is sitting on his throne, who alone can save. Paul is well aware of his weakness and his inability to save anyone. And because of that, he, he goes to God and he lays his burden at his feet and he prays for those names that he most likely knew, his family members, his, his co-workers at the synagogue and, and in the temple where he knew these, these grandiose Pharisees and Sadducees who were these self-righteous people. He prayed for them. I'm convinced he prayed for them by name. And as he prayed, he was joining this sovereign work of God, this supernatural divine activity of God in the salvation process. Well, that in and of itself is his responsibility. And when we pray, we join God. And we actually say, Lord, I, 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 you know, there are no lost causes with God. We've, we've said this several times. And some of you have family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors or whatever. I have a few who don't seem to be open and responsive to the gospel. Uh, the other day, well, a couple of years ago, Patty and I went to a neighborhood meeting uh, several years ago, six or seven years ago. I've been there now nine and a half in, in the community I'm living in. I lived in an apartment until my house was built. And we went to the first meeting that we had time to go to. And people... As I introduced myself, they knew who I was. They knew I was the pastor or preacher at Emmanuel Baptist Church. How do they know that? Do I have a sign on my house that says pastor, preacher of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Kind of interesting how the word got out and the walls go up. And the... So sometimes our gospel witness seems irrelevant in an ever-changing culture. Yet in this never-changing gospel, as we pray, the Spirit of God can break the strongest of hearts. 
can bend the most stubborn spirits and speak into, into their hearts and their minds and their lives in the most gentle but yet convicting, convicting and convincing ways in which they will come to realize, I need Jesus as we pray. And when we pray, we join God in the activity that God wants to do in redeeming a lost world unto himself. That's our privilege, and that's our joy. Number five, we need to sacrifice our all completely. How do I engage? I sacrifice my all completely. Notice the Apostle Paul says, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer for to God. Notice, for them. For is also in the original language. It is a preposition of reference, not direction like to, but reference in which the Apostle Paul is referencing those to whom he's praying for. I am praying for them. While them is not identified in this text, you take the contextualization of the whole thing in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you understand that the people that he's praying for are his fellow countrymen, these self-righteous, these, these people who are rejecting the gospel and the context, and the reason he's praying for all of them. He's praying for those who are yet to be saved. And he's willing to sacrifice his all for that, for them. He doesn't pray for himself as the priority of this prayer time, but he's putting them in the priority place of his prayers, petitioning God on their behalf for them. In his prayer life, they are the priority. I mean, we've already seen already in the, the life of the Apostle Paul as it began in Romans chapter 1, where he has been called by God to take the gospel. He, he has been commissioned by God to proclaim the gospel. He is committed to God in order to do whatever it takes to bring the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, that gospel that he is not ashamed of. And Paul is going through, if you know anything about his testimony in Acts, he goes through horrific trials and testings and tribulations and persecutions and beatings and almost puts, is put to death for what purpose? To bring his fellow countrymen and unbelievers the gospel of Jesus. There is nothing that he isn't willing to sacrifice in order for them to be saved. And the Apostle Paul is, I think, on this offering of grace, bringing their names to the table of grace, even at the expense of praying for his own needs, which I'm sure are many, and he is willing to put himself on the altar so that they might be saved. And I think Paul even says... I, I'd be willing to give up my own salvation so that they might be saved. Is that not mo the most selfless act that anybody could ever give for someone else's salvation? Are you willing to sacrifice to give up in such a way so that the people around us in this beautiful city called Wichita might be saved? Is for them. You know, I think a lot of times we think that what we do in here is for us. Don't we? I know sometimes I do. And I'm almost perfect. But what we do in here is not for us. It's for him and for them. But the great commandment is to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. And to love our neighbor as ourself. 
there's a great commission with that great commandment to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always. When is he with us? As we go. As we're willing to lay our all on the altar for the glory of God and the salvation of others. But when you come in here every Sunday, this is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's for him and for them that they might be saved. Number six, I need to secure a patient hope. Once I share in God's plan and strengthen my concern and submit a heartfelt plea and support God's activity and sacrifice my all completely in the altar for the cause and of the redemption of a lost humanity, I need to secure a patient hope. This is not just a possibility here, but it's a promise. Notice that they may be saved. This word is one word in the original language, that they may be saved. One word. Isn't it interesting how another foreign language can mean a whole phrase for us in the English language? <laughs> this is one word in the, in the original language, that they may be saved. And as you sort of look at the verse, you have a tendency to look at this one passage and this one word in this passage and come away with this idea that the Apostle Paul has a hope. He has an expectation. He has an expectancy. He has something inside of him that he's hoping and wishing that they will be saved. We know in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, that not, not everybody of, of his fellow countrymen have rejected the gospel because some have, have been saved. Some have not. And he's one who has been saved. But there's a hope, there's an expectation that there will some that will be saved. And God is saying to us through him that we should never give up hope that they will be saved. A hope, an expectation, an expectancy that at the right moment, in the right way, God is going to break through and he's going to bring them to their knees and cause them to look up to him and see him as their savior and turn to him as Lord of their lives. A patient hope. Now, I don't know about you, but some of us are not very patient. Did you know that's one of my strengths, patience? I have, you know, that's one of my characteristics. If you work for me at any time or work with me or I work alongside me, you know that I am a very patient individual. What do you say about that, Brother Andy? Ryan? Chickens? And the answer is a resounding not. Not. About eight years ago, I said last Sunday in here, this auditorium, we put 3,000 seats in it. 3,000 seats. I don't know if that was faith or something else. I don't know. But we did. And now we have an auditorium. How many seats in here now, Pastor Mark? We've taken out a bunch. Did you count them at some point? Close to 2,000 seats. We've covered some up to kind of squish on in a little bit. And uh, you're feeling a little bit like 
I'm not in a big empty auditorium anymore. But there's still empty seats. And I said about eight years ago, I'm not concerned about the empty seats. Anybody remember me hearing me say that? Raise your hand. Come on, raise it high. Be honest. Who was not here and didn't hear me say that? A lot of you. And some of you got mad at that. The reason why I wasn't concerned about the empty seat is because I didn't think that it was time to be concerned about the empty seats because there, were t- there was too many things that needed to happen before we became concerned about the empty seats. Because when you invite someone to be a part of, of something, and that something you invite them to is cancerous, you make them cancerous, you don't make them healthy. We were not a healthy church. And it's taken nine years for us to become what I believe is a healthy church. Now I'm concerned about the empty seats. Because the cancer is gone. Now, don't read into what I'm saying. The cancer is not people. The cancer is sin. And we were seeking to fill this auditorium and the seats of this auditorium so that we could fill them for our glory and for our performance, not for his glory and for the reaching of lost people. That's what I believe. And I stopped caring about the empty seats because it wasn't time. Now, I would say that waiting nine years is, is pretty patient <laughs> for God to fill seats. And I wish I could tell you that 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 waiting period was, was, was sometimes easy. But for Roseanne and Angela, who work close to me, and that little cul-de-sac over there, they can tell you it has not been easy. Has it, Roseanne? No. But I've never given up hope that I believe in God's timing and God's way with us being responsible. God will fill this place in his time, in his way, for the right reasons, for his glory, and to reach this city for Jesus. And I can tell you some history things about our church. Every time we built an auditorium in this church, we built it and attendance went down. Then we built another building and attendance went down. I can show you that. It's statistically accurate. You like statistics. I showed it to you the other day, didn't I? Back in the 50s, uh, wasn't it 50s, something like that, I can't remember. Yeah, back in the 50s, we were in that little auditorium over here, and it was jam-packed, and, and uh, well, before we were meeting in the shack, and then we built that auditorium, and we built that, thinking we would fill it. As soon as we moved into the new building, the tenants went down. Then, eventually, a couple of decades later, a decade later, a new pastor came, and that building became filled, and we built now the epicenter, which is the worship center. Y'all remember that? How many were here when we built that? We thought we were going to fill that. And when we built it, as soon as we did, guess what? Attendance went down. Matter of fact, the attendance was so poor when we were in that building, before John Click had come, the interim pastor told our church that unless we did something financially, we couldn't afford to call a pastor in that big auditorium over there that seats 13, 1400, something like that. And Pastor John came, and God blessed through a period of revival, and we filled that auditorium. Once, a little bit, about a third a second time. I don't think it was completely full both times. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. And then, because we were running two services rather than go to three, we built this. And as soon as we built this, guess what? Attendance went down. 
went down. And we have yet to fill this place. So we were in the shack and it was filled and we built that building. We filled that and we built that and God filled that building. We built this. We haven't filled this yet, but guess what? If God filled the shack and then he filled the other one and then he filled the epicenter, it's time for him to fill this one. It's time. Now, I hate to tell you that the other times that happened, we changed pastors. <laughs> but that's not in my plan for the moment. But you're glad to do whatever you want to do, God. But I believe in his time and in his way, every seat in this place will be filled. And let's make Let's learn from our past mistakes. Never build another building. Can I get an amen on that? Unless we have the cash. Right, Brother James? Okay. Number last, stay focused and engaged. It's important that you stay focused on engaged. Notice it said that they may be saved. Remember, that's all one word, and I've kind of divided it up a little bit because there's actually there's a whole bunch of cool stuff here, but just for the, the sake of where we're going at, that they may be saved. Saved from judgment, saved from condemnation, saved from the control of sin. To be saved. To be saved. What does it mean to be saved? It's interesting that if you take a look, I hope you got a, a bulletin. Did you get a bulletin? I've got one somewhere around here. Did you get a bulletin? Take a look at your bulletin. Inside of your bulletin, every Sunday, we have two things. We have the next steps. And we have the plan of salvation. That they may be saved. Where does salvation start? It starts with God. For God so loved the world. What's the problem? The problem is sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Did you know that that sin is important because I'm held accountable for that sin? For the wage of sin is death. Well, who can help me then if the wage, the consequence, what I earn and what I deserve because of my sin is eternal separation from God in a place called hell? It's found in Romans 5, 6, and 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for you and for me. Well, when can this salvation happen? When I put my faith in Jesus alone. When I repent of my sin. When I believe in and confess Jesus as Lord of my life. It says... For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So how can I make this decision today? Receive his call, admit that I'm a sinner, believe that Jesus died, turn from my life of sin and commit my life to Jesus, making him the authority over my life. I must call upon Jesus then to be saved by grace through faith. There's an example of prayer right there beneath that. I'm going to ask everybody to take a look at that example prayer. It's there every Sunday for your review. Just take a look at that for just a minute. Just read over that for a second. Would you do that right where you are? Lord Jesus Christ, I confess that I'm a sinner and that I cannot save myself. I believe that you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sin against God. I confess that you were raised from the dead so that I might live in victory over my sin. By faith, I now turn from my sin of 
my life of sin and trust you as my personal Savior and commit to making you the authority over, my, over the rest of my life. From this moment forward, I will take up my cross and die to myself, committing to follow you wherever you lead, regardless the cost. In Jesus' name, amen. Most prayers that are led for people to place their faith and trust in Jesus are not that long. Why is ours that long? Because I'm convinced this is the kind of confession in which people are saved. This little bitty two-sentence thing, I'd, uh, and, and keep in mind, as I said earlier, it's not the prayer that saves us. It's the confession with a heart that has been transformed and changed by the Spirit of God in receiving the gift of God, which is Jesus Christ. Committing to His leadership and His Lordship, whatever the cost, wherever He leads, I'll take up my cross and follow Him. I'm convinced there are too many who received Christ in what I call fire insurance or get out of hell card rather than truly confessing Christ as their Savior and Lord. Pastor Mark's going to come up in just a minute and he's going to play a, an invitation hymn. I'm going to ask you if you would across this auditorium today. If you're already saved, pray for those who are here or not. And if you're not saved, I want to encourage you to take a look at this. And as he leads us in this song, I'm going to ask you to consider what decision you need to make today. There's a, a little card here inside of your worship guide. Very simple. Just take the name, put your name on it, your date of birth, your address, your city, your phone number, your email. I'm committing to take the following steps. This is the next steps area over here to my right, to your left. Talk with the pastor about which step I need to take today to place my faith and trust in Christ for salvation. To give him testimony through believer's baptism. Maybe to join and unite with the church. Maybe to find a life group and become a part of that. Maybe to find a place to serve. Maybe to support my church through giving my tithes and offerings. Or maybe to begin sharing my faith with someone that I know that's lost. In this decision time, there's a next step place over here. There are pastors and people who are willing and, and who want to pray with you because they love you. And they're committed to helping you seek and understand God's will for your life. So would you bow with me for a moment? Would you take this opportunity to pray while Pastor Mark sings? Let's consider that next step. And whatever that step is for you today, I'm going to ask you just to stand where you are. We're not going to stand until he's through with the song. I'm going to ask that no one leave until we're done. Don't disrupt this time, allowing the Holy Spirit of God to move in someone's heart and life. And when he's done, we'll stand and sing. But if you need to make a decision today, if anyone that I have talked about on this next step, little card. I invite you to move to that next step while Mark sings. So if God's leading, you just stand up and you go while he sings. As God leads, will you go?